We're back after a long Thanksgiving weekend, uneventful, and it's been a nice break. But the news continues, and we're here to talk about it on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my hopefully rested colleagues, Chris Ranowski, Laura Johnston, and Jane Cahoon. Did you all have a very peaceful Thanksgiving weekend? Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) it's good to hear now we got the run to the holidays i mean the stories that uh that your guys put together for the weekend god they were great i mean we had julie washington series about faces of covid we had Corey schaefer talking about the drug network being run by the heartless felons adam farise looking at the jail warden which is going to be the first thing we talk about so let's get started What did former Cuyahoga County Jail Warden Eric Ivey have to say when he sat down with investigators in July? Chris Ranowski, this was a great story. I really enjoyed all of the detail that came through. What did we learn? Right. So a little bit of the backstory. Eric Ivey was the warden at the jail for for a pretty significant amount of time, and he ended up agreeing to cooperate with investigators and this large investigation into the jail that began kind of in earnest after a series of deaths that began in in the summer of 2018 and led to 11 deaths over the course of nine months, nine or 10 months. And and so he agreed to sit down with prosecutors and, and investigators from the FBI who offered him protection from criminal charges he faced. He faced criminal charges for basically telling jail guards to turn off their body cameras uh, while they were investigating the death of one of those inmates. And and so as as part of his agreement to cooperate with investigators, he sat down and gave these this series of interviews that Adam got a hold of last week and or a couple of weeks ago and started pouring through them. And it was a lot of stuff and and he covered a lot of ground. Um he talked about a lot of stuff that we already knew, you know, that 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 inmates had died that there were too few corrections officers making very low pay, uh, which led to burnout among the officers. And, and this resulted in long lockdowns for inmates who were crammed into just about every corner of the jail. And all of this happened while Ivy's boss, then jail director Ken Mills, slashed costs for inmates while taking on a, a huge amount of new inmates under a plan to regionalize the jails and take uh, prisoners from other cities in the in Northeast Ohio and in Cuyahoga County. But Ivy also made some admissions during his interviews about about how drugs were pouring into the jail. And, and that's important because a lot of these deaths, some of these deaths were the result of overdoses. And so um, one of the things that he, he told investigators is, is, I suspect that corrections officers we're bringing drugs into the jail, but he basically told them, I don't feel like there's a way that I can stop it, which is kind of, kind of a stunning thing to admit. And, and Ivy said that there were huge personality clashes between Ken Mills and then Sheriff Cliff Pinckney uh, and, and medical officials, uh, some who gave grave warnings about inmate safety before the deaths, all while keeping an eye on on the budget of the of the jails uh, for for the county, it, it was one of the things that we learned through this is that there was this plan that was formulated by County Executive Armin Budish to kind of turn the jail into a profit center. And one of the ways that they were going to do that was to bring in all these inmates, and then they sort of started to cut corners in things like medical care and food. 
and other parts of the jail that were sort of quality of life things for for the prisoners, for the lack of a better word. And but but it's interesting the story, which is you know it's a pretty substantial story because it did cover a lot of ground. But I think the most you know the stunning thing was the you know I mean he said you know, he had no answers for how seven people died. And he goes, you have to look at them on a case by case basis. And he said, some guys come back from court and hangs themselves. What are you going to do about that? And yeah, it was, of, it I was mean, shocking what a, what when he said, I wasn't looking for patterns. I just wanted to look at them case by case. It's like, come on, man. How do you not look at it for patterns? It was a very cavalier attitude, but man, it is a mission about taking the guy in the elevator and smacking him while the television crews are still in the building is also, it just gives you an idea of how out of control things are or were at the jail. So, right. He was interviewed. That's a, that's an interesting story. I think this was maybe in like 20, 2018. I, I can't remember what year it was, but he was on one of these MSNBC jail shows called lock up. And and he he did this interview where he was sort of hailed as this, you know, young, in, in control kind of warden. And then while the camera crew was outside the building, he like open hand slapped an inmate in the face, like while they were on an elevator. And I, it's it's just I, I encourage people to spend some time with this because, you know, and especially I, I know it's hard for people to sort of muster up empathy for people who are in jail. And, and some of these, you know, some of these people were, were in jail for, for being accused of some pretty bad things, but a lot of these people weren't convicted of crimes and, you know, these people were awaiting trial and, and, and really, I, you know, as a taxpayer of this County, it's, it's troubling to me how, you know, beyond the loss of life, which is, which is terrible. The, the just how expensive this is going to be for the county. You know, at the end of this, we're going to spend millions and millions of dollars settling lawsuits, paying legal bills, and and ultimately fixing a lot of problems that were allowed to to atro- You know, I mean, we allowed the jail to atrophy, and then when you do that, you know, to sort of rebuild it, it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of effort. Yeah. I mean, we had to have federal investigators come in and point out. Yeah, what was wrong with the jail because state right. investigators would not do anything. Right, and, and which we've discussed before. What the, the right. enlightening part of this story was getting some of the behind-the-scenes details of the story we've been talking about for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Got to move on. It's this week in the CLE, where has the dreaded spotted lanternfly been found in Ohio, and what does it mean? Chris Ranowski, this has been inevitable because it's been all over the place in Pennsylvania, but this is pretty bad for agriculture and for people who like trees. Where did they find this thing? So this isn't the first spotting of this in Ohio, but it is significant. There was a discovery recently of of the spotted lanternfly in a small village south of Steubenville known as Mingo Junction, which is the first time I'd ever heard of that. This is all in Jefferson County, which is in the east, like on the eastern part of the state. The first official confirmation of this particular bug came October 19th and raised concerns uh, about this colorful insect's potential catastrophic economic impact on Ohio's agriculture. It's a pretty fascinating story. It was originally, I, I saw it in another news organization, but Kaylee Remington actually got a hold of the gentleman who who discovered this, a, a guy who owns a company called JK Autoglass. Uh, his name is Jason Copras. And he, he discovered it. He looked out the window and he said he saw it and I think it was dead. And he thought it looked kind of interesting. So he brought it in. And then a friend of his who works at a mechanic shop next door said, like, I look, I, I don't think that's what you think it is. And I think it's probably bad. So 
he called, he was, uh, his, his friend encouraged him to call state agricultural officials. And he said they were there very quick with a lot of, of manpower and, and they started to investigate it and then they found a nest. And, you know, I, I know it, it seems like a lot of fuss over a, a bug, but, you know, since the discovery uh, in Pennsylvania in 2014, they have, they've had to quarantine 26 counties because of the potential uh, impact that these things can have on things like grapevines and fruit trees and, and oak trees and pine trees. I mean, these things eat through everything. They're, they're invasive and, and, and they, they pose a real threat to things like, uh, like Ohio's wine industry. And if, if you've ever heard of something called the Emerald Ash Borer, which I'm sure, you know, anybody who pays attention to this stuff has heard of them, you know, it, it's, it's something similar to that. It's, it's, but except not except, specific to one tree. I mean, it right, attacked right. a lot more stuff. I mean, the Emerald Ash Borer wiped out all the ash trees around here. Most of them, uh, most cities cut them down just yeah, to the, keep it from flourishing. The lanternfly is sort of like the Tasmanian devil of bugs. It just it blows through a lot of 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 plants, and and so it's it's definitely something that is worth the response that this gentleman saw when he called into agricultural officials. It's got a very dramatic appearance with the red and the spots and and it's big, right? It's like an inch big. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, I guess the if there is a silver lining, it's that if you see one of these, it's pretty easy to recognize. And, <laughs> and if you if you want to see it, make sure, you know, we, we have a photo of it that the Ohio Department of Agriculture provided to us. So if you want to check it out, one of the things they noted is that this time of the year, it's actually very easy to spot them because there's no color on the trees. But if you do see them, please notify the agricultural officials because it is serious and it, and it, and it you know, it, it has the ability to sort of disrupt a lot of of things that we don't necessarily think about every day. With the big snowstorm coming, I don't think there'll be many moths flying around. You're yeah. listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio reported tens of thousands of coronavirus cases over the long holiday weekend. But why shouldn't we put much stock in those numbers? Jane Cahoon, we're, we're, there's a predicted gigantic surge coming from all the people that traveled on Thanksgiving. And just at this moment, it seems like the numbers are almost useless. Why? <laughs> okay, well, they have this backlog of a bunch of antigen tests, like thousands of them. And uh, these are the, the more rapid tests, but less reliable tests. And they have this backlog of thousands of them that they are making extra calls on to confirm because apparently there must be a lot of, you know, they're not as reliable, as I said. So they're working their way through this. You you go to the, this has been going on for probably like at least a week, I think. And you go to their dashboard for the Ohio Department of Health and it says, please bear with us as we work through this surge in testing. They're doing more and more of these antigen tests now. So uh, they, they I, I remember the governor saying that that not every state, you know, double checks these things, but but in Ohio, they they are going the extra mile to confirm them. All right, let me ask you a bunch of questions you can't possibly know the answers to. Oh, good. What, 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 why do you have to verify an antigen test? And what does that mean? Do they give a second test? What is, what is the thing they're doing that has caused this delay? Okay, that's number one question that okay. I don't have an answer second to. Second question, you, how did this just come <laughs> up overnight? It's not like overnight we got 10,000 antigen tests. All of a sudden, 
after months of having steady numbers, we're in, we're completely befuddled. We had the one day last week where they reported 13,000, right? But it was because right. they got right. a bunch of verifications. It just doesn't make much sense to me what's going on. And I think when we get a chance to ask again, we ought to say, what exactly is this process that has made our numbers so useless? Well, they, they've increased the antigen testing. So I should say that, and that could be one factor. As far as like, did it happen overnight? You know, maybe there was a backlog before and they just weren't mentioning it before. But, um, <laughs> Which means the know, numbers have been useless for a long time. <laughs> could I, um, just since, you know, we haven't had a podcast since the middle of last week, I just to play a little catch up, can I give you some figures here? Yes, please. We have now crossed the 400,000 mark of reported cases. We did that over the long weekend. So for, for the year, Ohio has uh, 414,432 cases. Last uh, Wednesday... You know, we, let me stop you. You know, you're yeah. getting up close to the population of Cleveland there. It's getting close. I mean, we're under 500,000. I can't remember where we are. It was 480, 470. But we are soon going to have the equivalent of the entire population of Cleveland infected with the coronavirus. Yeah. And then uh, last Wednesday, we, we had an all-time record of 156 deaths reported. Uh, I think Rich Exner is going to be looking a little more closely at the at the deaths and, and might have some data analysis coming up on that. But they they didn't report the cases on Thanksgiving Day, but on Friday they reported like a combined 17,065 cases for the two days. But still, as we said, those leave out the unconfirmed antigen tests. <laughs> also, uh, last week we had Lake, Lorraine, and Montgomery counties join Franklin County as being in the purple category, the most severe level in the on the coronavirus alert map. And we had 11 more counties that are on the watch list for becoming purple. So, you know, even as I said, without these tests being reported, it's still awful. Yeah, it, it's just not having a definitive apples to apples day to day comparison means we're clueless. It, I, it, it just it's not a good enough answer for them to say we have a backlog because you no longer can track the trend. So, so, you know, how will you know we're having a surge if they come on Thursday and say, okay, this is how many cases we have, but we have 20,000 that we're verifying. You have no clue what that means. And it's, right. it's the most frustrating thing. Do we have any sense of how many they seek to verify that come back negative? Probably That's not. a good question. Um, another one I can't answer. So yeah, and I, and you ought to fire me from this. Podcast. It's not your job to answer these questions, Jane. It's the governors and the health departments, and they're not providing these answers. And we need these answers to understand what's going on in the state. Everybody's predicting this Thanksgiving, post Thanksgiving surge. Can I? Can I go ahead, Chris. Because two things are happening. Like either they're not giving us the 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 full amount of information, which is troubling. Or they don't have the full <laughs> amount of information, which is worse. Like I, yeah, I mean, right. it is, and I, you know, and you're you're totally right. You know, we're this latest surge. You know, you can as as much as you want to point to small gatherings and whatever. I mean, 
you know, we had an election, we had the run up to the election and we had the celebrations that happened after the election. And, and the latest surge sort of tracks with two weeks after a lot of that stuff, two or three weeks after all of that stuff, when all these new cases start to come up. Well, where are we going to be in two weeks now? Because everybody went home for the holidays. And we're not going to know because they can't count. Right. And it's like, you know, are we going to take, you know, are we going to send our, our, our lab testers home for the holidays and not have an answer for as to how bad this, this Thanksgiving traveling season is going to be for, you know, our, our number of cases and, and much worse, uh, you know, what a, what a load our hospitals are going to have to, to sort of assume over the holidays. I, I, I mean, I think it's, I don't think people have a full grasp on how bad things are about to get. Right. And we need to get straight answers from the state about why the numbers are so screwed up. What what is the process? Yeah. If you could figure out the process, you might be able to figure out a good estimate of what the number actually should be. If if you understood how many of the ones they're verifying come back false, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, other than saying, yeah, we got antigen tests, we have to verify it's a backlog. They've said squat. That's not acceptable. And we'll be pounding on them to get more. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the story of the Mexican national arrested in Cleveland on charges of sending large amounts of drug money back to Mexico? Chris Arnowski, this was a fascinating story. John Caniglia put it together last week. It was kind of a surprise. I didn't realize this was going on. I didn't realize we were such a big provider of money, drug money, to Mexico. Right. So uh, the story, to give you the whole story in kind of a nutshell, um, the federal investigators, uh, federal drug investigators in Northeast Ohio disrupted a a major drug pipeline, uh, they say, that exists between a a Mexican drug cartel and and Northeast Ohio. Um, There... it, it's, it's this this story sort of go, focuses on a woman by the name of Susanna Ramira Orozco, and she she got arrested back in July in Euclid with nearly ninety two thousand dollars in drug proceeds, and and she is accused of being a part of uh, this web of couriers that collect drug money in Cleveland and funnel it into Mexican banks to fuel these large-scale drug operations. Uh, she is a Mexican national and was indicted uh, this month in U.S. District Court in L.A. on a conspiracy to commit money laundering and other charges stemming from her role as a financial conduit to these distributors. And she is is a, is part of this sort of burgeoning uh, cartel. It's called the Cartel uh, de Jalisco Nueva Generacion in, in she, it's, it's something that, uh, this investigation began back in November 2018 and it has ties to Mexico, Colombia and the United States. And it's one of the fastest growing criminal organizations in Mexico. Um, in this story, uh, she met with an informant, uh, or an informant met with agents about her, uh, back in July 2019. And, and basically started the ball rolling on a surveillance and, and, and undercover investigation involving her, where she eventually exchanged money. Federal gover- the federal government actually wired her, wired money to her to sort of see where it went and, and to sort of track it. And, and this is sort of how they say they investigate these things, which is, you know, the government actually spends government money. Uh, and and kind of tracks it through the system, and they say that this is how they 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 bring down bigger players in these cartels. 
Yeah, the ethical question that was raised at the end about mm -hmm. the government actually providing money to the Mexican drug cartels to be able to trace it. They were just shy of about, they were about to send 92,000 back when she ended up getting arrested. And so they ended up not sending it, but they did send tens of thousands to track it. But man, $92,000, it's a lot of money. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story. But yeah, it, you're right. They they do sort of, it, we the walkout on this story was one of, of, sort of discussing the ethics of, of doing that. You know, we talk, you know, we, we talk a lot of times about how, you know, the FBI will sort of hold somebody's hand up to, you know, the, the line and then arrest them, you know, that, that they kind of pull them up, but, but, you know, to, to actually find out how this money is being spent and where it's going and, and how it's laundered, they actually have to spend it. And, and so, um, but one of the things that that one of the people that we talked to, a, a, a former chief of international operations with the DEA, he said that it's not this is not something that's sort of done randomly. They don't just trust a, an other undercover agent with a bunch of money and say, you know, go nuts. Um, he said that it's it's highly regulated and he said they're able to follow the money to see where it goes. And most money launderers work for more than one cartel. So they're able to sort of identify a lot of people by doing it. So it's a, it's a fascinating story. Again, uh, something that I think people should check out in full. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How many Ohio natives don't live in the state anymore and where have they moved? Jane Cahoon, leave it to data expert, Rich Exner to look at census numbers and other things and come up with something like this. This was another fascinating story from the weekend. And I know you probably enjoyed it considering where you were living before you happily moved here to Ohio. Chris. Right. I went the opposite direction, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not a Florida native. I'm a New Jersey native. Right, right. Anyway, well, as you said, Rich looked at new estimates for 2019 census estimates that were released earlier this month and determined that close to one in three uh, native Ohioans now live elsewhere in the United States. That that amounts to 3.7 million people in comparison to the 8.7 million Ohio natives still living in the state. So where have they moved? They've moved to Florida, California, and Texas. Those are the the top destinations um, All right, but, but, other than, other than uh, bordering bordering states. Why would an Ohioan move to Texas? I just don't get that. <laughs> you know, I get Florida. They want to go be in the sun and be with all the other Ohioans that have left. But Texas. Well, I mean, come on, open your mind. I have two nieces who happen to live in Austin and it is a great city and they love it. So, so there. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's a huge percentage <laughs> of people that have left the state. Yeah, that's more than a, a, a million people who were born in Ohio now live in Florida, California, and Texas. And then, um, so that's like over 500,000 living in Florida. And then um, just to give you the rundown, so this includes also the bordering states. So Florida, number one, second is, is California, followed by Kentucky, Texas, Indiana, Michigan, North Carolina, and Georgia. And then Rich also did sort of the the reverse. He 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 looked at people who have moved here from from elsewhere, even though Ohio is kind of on the negative side of of that equation. But uh, as far as the people who have moved here, the states with the most natives now living in Ohio are all neighboring states: Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Kentucky, 
and Michigan. And then next is New York, which isn't too far away. And then um, Indiana after that. So uh, he said more common are moves to Ohio from other countries. Uh, We have um, an estimated 619,000 foreign born people here. Yeah, it's good stuff. And I love when he does his data mining because it just it's great conversation fodder. I still am not going to understand why Ohioans move to Texas. You're listening <laughs> to this week in the CLE. How did the heartless felons build an illegal drug network inside the Cuyahoga County Jail? Chris Warnowski, a good part of it involved the guards at the Cuyahoga County Jail. <laughs> right. A great piece of work we had in the, uh, the, the on the website over the weekend. I think it might have run in the Plain Dealer today. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did we find? Well, um, it, it, we found out that the heartless felons did team up with some Cuyahoga County jail guards in the jailhouse to to bring these drugs into the jail. I know we talked earlier in the podcast about Eric Ivey and his seeming unwillingness to, to sort of address this problem that he 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 noted was kind of you know just part of doing business in a jail. But um, Corey Schaefer. Uh, got his hands on a lot of uh, documents that are, that were filed ahead of the sentencing of a, an alleged heartless felons member by the name of Lamar Spates, who is, is accused of, of smuggling a phone into the, into the, uh, into the jail. And in, in the lead of the story, he, he talks about this, this cell phone. He used it to text his brother, a description of a courier that he sent to pick up a, a package of marijuana and other drugs in balloons that were going to be smuggled into the jail. And, and his quote, this quote is, he said, he's kind of slim, quick weave hair, and he's got on a CO uniform, which is yeah. corrections officers. And I mean, and that's sort of where the story takes off. You know, this is a, again, another really well-researched sort of knowledgeable story from Corey Schaefer, just about the, just how pervasive this problem is in the jail and how, how you know seemingly easy it is to to sort to sort of get away with this stuff you know i mean in this case obviously he didn't get away with it but you know there was really not a lot of investigative attention on this stuff before you know all the people were dying in the jail which you know it's the the thing that kind of goes hand in hand with this is that we started seeing more and more people dying of fentanyl overdoses and that that those drugs sort of started to make their way into the jails and and people who were largely unsupervised due to staff shortages started to overdose and 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 this story sort of gets really really sort of into you know the 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 sort of gritty details of how these things are just well, brought into the jail I mean, two things stood out. One was the line that it's actually easier for people in the jail to buy drugs than when they're out on the street. That's like a really bad thing. Yeah. But when you look back at the the Ivy story, the the one we've discussed earlier in the podcast about the former warden saying that because they don't have their own investigative unit, they have to rely on the sheriff's office, which doesn't really care that they, they don't make it a priority to investigate things in the jail if all the guards know that, that, you know, there's not going to be much of an investigation and I can make some good money by doing this, it creates a bigger inducement. I'm I'm surprised that there wasn't a greater vigor at, at stopping this and blocking it. Well, and, you know, it's uh, there was a point that was made that, you know, a, a lot of these, a lot of the COs live in these, you know, the same neighborhoods as the people that are in the jail. And, and it's, you know, it, it's, that was sort of an observation 
that was made by investigators in, in, in during this investigation. And, and, you know, whether that's true or not remains to be seen, but, but, you know, if, if that's the case, you know, you know, a guy, you know, you know, oh, that's so-and-so and, and I'm going to have, see if so-and-so going to do me a favor. I mean, it, it wasn't a huge secret that, that this County was underpaying their corrections officers. I mean, we did stories about that too. And, you know, you see people, who are working a really hard job, making little money, it, you know, and, and, and it's not that, yeah, it's not that but everybody's corruptible, but, but it's, it's, but, but you, you're, you still are an officer. You're still supposed to have integrity. And I mean, it's striking how bad this was because you're, when you take that job, when you become the jail guard, you're, you're basically agreeing to serve the community to do the right thing. And the, the descriptions of what was going on in this story were, you know, guy walks into a, a cell with an orange jumpsuit under his arm and leaves without it. And inside the cell are 10 fentanyl pills that were apparently wrapped up in it. It sounds brazen. It just mm-hmm. sounds like it was very, very well known that the guards were in the tank for the, for the gang. And how does that happen? And where is the brass? Where are the people who are supposed to be keeping order in the jail? If every inmate knows I can buy fentanyl in the jail, how come the people running the jail don't seem to know that? Well, and the other issue is, is why are all these drug addicted people in jail? You know, I mean, there's, I mean, that's, that's the other issue is that there, some of these people who are the market, for these drugs, you know, I mean, here's what you do. You eliminate the market for drugs. And, well, they are. You, we, you, and, to their credit, we should point out that uh, Armin Budish, the county executive, has has put some money behind that. They're going to create the diversion center. It's going to open up fairly shortly. And so it, you're right. That will start to reduce the demand in the jail for those drugs. That's a good point. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right. I should point out, Laura Johnston dropped off. She's having incredible technical difficulties these days. I'm not sure when she'll be back because she's going to have to do something to fix her network. She might be gone all week. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow.